You're listening to Digital Quarantine, Redefining the New Normal, a podcast sharing insights about different business topics during the global pandemic. The show is hosted by Sydney Schaefer, founder and CEO of Kingfish Digital. Thank you for listening and enjoy the show. Well, welcome to another episode of Digital Quarantine. Uh, with me, Sydney Schaefer. Mm-hmm. Um, so today we've got a really special guest today. It's my brother from the same mother, actually, Scott mm. Schaefer. <laughs> um, he's a general manager of finance at Zappos. And you've been with Zappos now how long? Oh, oh goodness. Let's see. I started in uh, June of 2008. So you just uh, celebrated 12 years, 12, 12, wow. 12 and a half now. Yeah. And that's a really long time. Yeah, a lot's, uh, lot's happened uh, since, you know, being there. I feel like I've gotten a lot older, fatter, had three kids. And grayer. You know, much, not- much, much grayer. Yes. Yeah. Well, <laughs> thanks for joining me today. I mean, you kind of had to, but uh, I still appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> Anything for you, Sid. Appreciate it. Um, so can you tell us a little bit more about like, what you do at Zappos and just you know, like, what's your role? Yeah. I, so, I mean, as the, the title says, general manager, I uh, generally manage our, uh, our finance team. Uh, so we are, Zappos is a uh, wholly uh, owned and independent subsidiary of Amazon. We were purchased in November of 2009. So, uh, have been with the company pre-acquisition uh, and have seen and done a whole number of things across finance and operations. So right now my scope uh, involves overseeing all finance, uh, accounting, FinOps. Uh, so you have your FP&A, your competitive analytics, our operations team rolls up to me. So supply chain, uh, our you know, fulfillment center guys in, uh, in Kentucky, uh, shout out to my Kentucky boys. Uh, and then really just working very closely with, uh, with our CEO uh, we have a new CEO uh, this year, Kedar Deshpande, uh, and just helping out with a lot of strategic decision making. It's uh, it's fun, you know. I think the things that I really enjoy most about my role is when we get to, you know, dive into you know not just day to day transactional activities, but really on the go forward looking. What are what differentiates Zappos, uh, you know, in all of our customers' minds? Mm-hmm. Customer being our our website customers, uh, our brand partners. We view them as our customers, but also our employees. You know, I think the, the, the key there is it's uh, the triangle of, of customers as you continue to take care and satisfy all of them. They'll all you know, show you the same result back. You manage a lot of things. I mean, that's Genre- generally, generally, <laughs> generally manage. Yeah, that's still you generally manage a lot of things. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to do it because we've got uh, we've got some some great folks uh, in helping to oversee and lead the various functions as well. I think some really incredible uh, team members that are just, they're passionate, they're empowered and you know, they love what they do. I'm, I'm here because uh, you know, one of our core values is to build a positive team and family spirit. And you know, we, we hire for that, we hire for culture and I couldn't do what I do right now without uh, I think the amazing team members that get to work with every day. Well, thanks for sharing some more about that. I would get into like your your like full transition from the very beginning, but I feel like that might take up more time than what we have where our listeners may actually want to uh, hear some more strategic stuff. But before we do that, because I am your sister and I know what your interests are, can you share more about your shoe hobby and how that kind of started because of Zappos? 
Yeah, uh, happy to talk about uh, my my sneaker issues. Uh, <laughs> over the past uh, past couple of years, have turned into uh, you know, I guess we call a, a sneakerhead, uh, if you will. Uh, working on a, a project a couple of years back that uh, that really got me into into sneakers, and what I really loved was really the storytelling aspect of mm-hmm. of sneakers. Uh, those I think the best ones are the ones that have the the most history or rich and in culture and not so much just our, our hype made for, for hype. It's something that's just, it's, it's cool. They're fun. They, they pop. So uh, I think I've got somewhere around uh, 80 to, to 90 different sneakers uh, right now. So, you know, some of my favorites, uh, and definitely a, a Nike head, Jordan head. Uh, I think the, the ones I love the most are my Nike Air Yeezy 2 Red Octobers, which are, are just amazing. They were a, a gift from a, a really wonderful friend. Uh, the Chicago uh, Off-White Jordan 1s, obviously pretty uh, pretty darn incredible. And then I think the, the best like deal I ever... Another language. I'm like, I'm yeah. like, show everybody what these shoes were, but we're, we're listening. But, but... Yeah. No, the, uh, I think the, the best one I was able to, to pick up was the, uh, the Concepts Blue Lobster uh, Nike SB Dunk oh, in the I've original packaging. Mm-hmm. Those ones are, are pretty sweet. Uh, got them over two years ago on StockX for, uh, for 300 bucks, and now they're going for 10x that right now. Wow. So pretty, uh, pretty darn awesome. Well, you're multifaceted. At least you really love your job <laughs> enough to collect 80 to 90 shoes. I, I do. And it's, you know, even the best part is, you know, quarantine time, you know, I keep adding to, to the collection. Uh, and what I get to do is wear them around the house. If they haven't been outside, they're greenlit for being indoors. So I get to, oh. you know, fulfill my sneaker issues indoors. Mm-hmm. Which is Someday wonderful. we'll be able to get back to work and you'll actually be able to like show mm-hmm. off your shoe collection that you've now acquired. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. <laughs> Someday. But, uh, so th- thanks again for sharing about mm-hmm. your sneaker addiction. I want to get into, and this is obviously we're, how, how long are we in? Seven, eight months, like mm-hmm. since everything shut down. Um, we've talked a little bit, obviously, outside of this about how the pandemic has, mm-hmm. how it affected Zappos. And the, a big piece of Zappos' culture was, you know, being in person, um, you know, and work-life integration. I think that now is probably the best example mm-hmm. of work-life integration because, <clears throat> Um, I know you guys are fully remote, but like, how, how did that impact you guys? You know, how did you, what was the process like moving that many people working from home? Can you share any, you know, insights or, you know, just kind of stuff you learned? Yeah, I can walk a little bit through kind of the, the process and, and what it took. And uh, I think just to also kind of be clear, we're not 100% work from home. Our uh, folks in, in Kentucky are uh, you know are at our fulfillment center at our photo studio are still holding it down. Uh, the team there is doing an incredible job. It's like keeping everybody safe, having appropriate protocols in place for um, uh, for cleaning, for social distancing, for for mask adherence, uh, and just am really proud of uh, of what they're doing, boots on the ground. Because uh, unfortunately, their job is not one that can be done remote. But uh, our Vegas uh, our Vegas crew, they're the ones who uh, you know had to mobilize rapidly. Uh, you know, we try to, try to remember the timeline as I were now it's been a in long time. It's week 31 working from home. Uh, so it's definitely been pretty, uh, pretty intense. And I think it was early March 
uh, where, you know, we made the decision uh, before the governor announced that, you know, we were, you know, going to basically, you know, be required to have, uh, have closure of our uh, offices, that we want to take extra precautions and safety for our folks out of an abundance of caution. And uh, we decide to, to mobilize and basically set ourselves, I think this was like on a Monday or Tuesdays, how can we get a majority of people working from home starting on that following Monday? Mm -hmm. uh, and so uh, it was basically a gigantic challenge for you know, a number of different groups. Uh, I think our uh, primary one was our call center. Uh, you know, Vegas uh, is where our, the home of our call center is, our mm -hmm. fantastic customer loyalty team. And we wanted to make sure that we can continue our operations without a hitch. So the, we had to work with uh, our uh, IT department and mobilize, you know, getting uh, several hundred folks basically set up for working from home with, uh, with machines. And so uh, IT and some of our, our campus crew were able to get all the machines you know, set up, dedicated for you know, every single individual within our call center. And there was a little bit of a transition window. Majority of them were able to get there uh, and start working from home within a week. And I think a week and a half was, uh, was the max. By that end of that second week, uh, before the governor announced the required closures, we were 100% uh, working from home, which was, uh, which was pretty incredible. I mean, beyond that, just from the finance perspective, uh, you know, we had to do some significant pivoting. Luckily, you know, we're we're a, a tech company, uh, you know, e-commerce, pure play retailer. And so we're used to working in, in, in a highly, if you want to call it like just virtual world with mm -hmm. everything that we do. Uh, I mean, when it comes to payroll and AP, we're, we're basically paperless, um, which was, I think, you know, a, an advantage to us because we were able to move those functions, you know, offsite, you know, with appropriate controls and protocols uh, and create, you know, mechanisms needed to make sure that we're still paying the bills, we're still paying employees. So, we're able to just really kind of just tick down for each of the different groups. What are the critical things that we need to make sure that we're doing? What are the blockers to be able to do this from a remote environment? What are the controls that we need to, to document or look at any like security policy exceptions in order to, to be able to do this? And uh, you know, I think we've, uh, we've been very happy with, uh, with the result from moving our operations to uh, the, we call it work from anywhere, you know, where it's, oh, nice. uh, one of the, the muscles that we're really trying to, to build up is the work from home and work from anywhere muscle, both uh, from a you know, technical perspective as well as cultural and leadership perspectives. Uh, so we're, we've been on week 31 of building our, our work from anywhere muscle. And it's, uh, you know, I'd say it was significantly smoother than what I expected, which is also a, just a testament to the, uh, the passion and excellence of the, the folks at Zappos. That's awesome. So from your perspective then, because a lot of companies have had to do this, but, you know, from your perspective, would you, are you guys planning to keep work remote, you know, as, as an option work from anywhere? Um, obviously share only what you can share with us, but I'd just love to hear what your opinion is on it. Yeah, I, the way that we've been thinking about the, the future when it's safe to, to return to work, and we've, uh, we've told our uh, employees, you know, we're constantly reviewing that decision that day. Our date right now for returning to work is uh, beginning of January, but we're going to continue to assess based on, you know, what we believe is in our employees' best interest and safety. So I'd say, you know, it, it, even past that window of time, as we've built up this work from anywhere muscle, where we're able to keep our eyes on our customer, uh, all three of our customers, and hold each other accountable to what we need to get done to make sure that we're taking care of those customers 
we've gained a lot of confidence in ourselves and our ability to do and be in a work uh, remote environment, regardless of whether you're, you know, in your house or your parents' house or, you know, whomever's place that you want. So I think we're going to give people the opportunity to have a more flexible work environment on a go forward and not require them, uh, depend upon the role, of course, uh, you know, having to have a static desk mm -hmm. uh, somewhere on campus. So I do expect this, this uh, kind of flex hybrid to continue where, uh, we're best served and where possible. Mm -hmm. I think it's a good employee benefit. You know, our company is basically fully remote. We're hiring a second person now who is also going to be fully remote. So we've got Minnesota and Colorado. Uh, and I, I think it's, you know, if you hire the right people that they can basically work anywhere. I mean, there's obviously some positions that can't do that, um, like you said, but as long as you hire the right people, you know, you trust in them to do their job. You know, I think that was always the concern with people that were very like traditionally minded is like, I think you can still build culture remotely. You just have to be very, uh, you know, very specific about it. So, yeah, I think it requires a couple of things. It's uh, it requires, you know, a very clear set of expectations and accountabilities, right? So if you're going to be remote, you're not necessarily next to somebody every day. And actually, whether you're remote or not, I think the best experience is to give somebody very clear expectations and accountabilities. So what you're constantly touching base on how they're doing, are they meeting those accountabilities? And so it's just a, just a better overall experience. And then I think the, the second uh, piece of that is really the fun aspect of it, because mm -hmm. it is a little bit harder to you know, have fun in, in a centralized workplace when you're not in a centralized workplace. So yeah. it's just important to know that you're, you know, you're with colleagues who you can trust, who you can have fun with, and to make sure that you're having fun constantly. Take that second to, you know, interject a, a, a work-approved joke, if you will, or, mm -hmm. you know, just a funny comment. Smile. Yeah. yeah, I mean, mm -hmm. yeah, it, you need to bring that positive energy more than ever before. I mean, one of uh, Zappos core values is create fun and a little weirdness. And for me, that's, it's probably after deliver wow, uh, I think is, is our best core value. Because, you know, if we're, if we're not enjoying what we're doing and creating fun and making this place a, a little weird, we're, we're no different than anywhere else. And I like to think that we are different and we're weird and fun and uh, quirky and we work hard and we play hard. Mm -hmm. And now we're just trying to figure out how to play hard For remotely. Sure. <laughs> yeah. well, that's super, that's really hard. You have to be so intentional about it. And yeah, it's, mm -hmm. It's like scheduling virtual happy hours. How do you not make every meeting about work keeping the first five minutes or something about like, how was your day going? You know, yep. like, actually bring it back to, to real life and not about work all the time. And that's the funny thing is uh, the mediums in which we communicate now are, you know, are different, right? So we've got our virtual worlds that we're talking in right now, but even on instant messaging, I think uh, we instant message a lot more than we did before, where it might've been email heavy. I think a lot of communication has moved to, to IM systems. Like we use Slack um, as well as some other internal tools. And I always forget like for the first couple in the morning to try and actually have some, uh, I think some, some nice, some niceties in there of, you know, the, the good morning, how you doing? Uh, remember that there's a human on the other side of it. So it takes a conscious effort to make sure that you're still building those relationships with your coworkers even through these, you know, virtual mediums, uh, even if you can't see them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's an easy habit to have where you're just like, oh, I'm, I'm in my computer, it's time to jump in, ready to go. Yep. And, <laughs> yeah. yeah.
now you just have to remember that there's a human on the other side. Well, I want to pivot to um, something more about, you know, that what like what is the future of e-commerce? We like to talk about this on these podcasts just because it's kind of fun to imagine. But we're kind of in the future now. Like I feel like we've mm. taken a lot of steps forward, everybody virtually and digitally. You know, I used to have issues with clients on Zoom where they didn't want to be like virtual, and now it's oh yeah, like we'll actually do video. So you know, what do you think is the future of e-commerce and retail and the world we live in now? And like, I don't know, as far out as you've projected, like five years into the future, what are we looking at? I mean, it's, it's a big question uh, to really to really think through. And what's really, I think, been interesting to me is uh, this has been a great time for customers. Mm-hmm. And in, in a different way where if, uh, you know, I think customers have gotten a lot more comfortable with using e-commerce mediums for purchasing where they were before. I think the level of convenience that has really scaled up and existed is something that has uh, benefited and spoiled consumers really in the past six months more than any other time in history. I mean, we now have four different food delivery apps that can get you food from basically anywhere near you in 30 to 60 minutes. And Mm -hmm. uh, I think, you know, that's been great. I mean, as you look at it from the grocery stores too, they've scaled up their delivery services, Costco, Target, your local groceries, uh, you know, Amazon, Whole Foods. The, uh, you know, I think the thing that uh, I see continuing on a lot of this is this level of spend through through e-commerce. It's more opportunity for small businesses to, to really make a name for themselves within their local communities. And I think that's really exciting. There's, yeah, I think, fantastic software out there that can be leveraged as SaaS solutions. The, the work that Shopify is doing mm-hmm. uh, you know, as an overall plot, platform is, is incredible. It's enabling anybody to, to pop up shops. And I think that has really accelerated in the past six months. Uh, so it gives you know, businesses a chance to, to scale up a lot faster and a lot cheaper without having to you know, manage a website themselves. They can leverage really easy and wonderful templates and payment systems that really are, are fully integrated uh, all the way through using brand new services. So for companies that can pop up and spin up an idea, I think the, the opportunity is there. Um, I think e-commerce looks a lot like what it is now, but actually even more so when it comes to um, omni-channel. I mean, there's been a, you know, a couple of really good competitors who have flexed up that muscle who have used their stores as distribution points. So it's, you know, you looked at a store before, you looked at, you know, what's the revenue per square foot that a store can do just from its pure traffic. And people were moving to that notion of of omni-channel, of buy online, pick up in store, return centers, um, buy online, ship to store, just a lot of that omni-channel functionality. And I think a lot of the winners right now are leveraging their stores that can't have the traffic as many fulfillment centers so you can get that product to customers in that area faster and actually in, in cheaper in some instances or even the pickups uh, you know, drive up to the mall and have them loaded in uh, you know, into the back of, back of your vehicle mm-hmm. I think those are the types of things that you will see continue to emerge where it's uh, leveraging your you know, infrastructure or creating new infrastructure to make experiences easier and better for the customer and some of that had already emerged, but it's still continued to grow. The carrier networks, I think, are one of the things that's going to be really the most interesting is how do they scale up? 
basically, I, not, I don't think a lot of people who are outside of kind of the e-commerce world right now know this, but uh, basically since the, the start of the pandemic, uh, the carrier networks have been operating at peak capacity oh, really? almost the entire time. So when you see very poor windows, like where you're, you know, you're used to uh, getting your packages you know, at you know, pretty quick frequencies, uh, you know, that was because there was a lot of capacity inside these carrier networks. I mean, carrier networks being your, your UPS, your mm -hmm. FedEx, uh, your USPS, where they had enough, you know, labor uh, as well as you know, vehicles to handle all the packages needed to to get, uh, you know, from wherever the the brand is distributing over to to the customer. Uh, and you know, during the peak windows, you know, they they flex up. You know, peak really for for us is in the holiday time when everyone's shopping for the holidays. Uh, people get maxed out, uh, or the carriers get maxed out on the amount of capacity and packages they can move on a daily basis. And it's been basically peak levels since April and has very much continued because of how all the consumer spending has shifted to, to online is requiring these carriers to bear the burden of it. Uh, and so what you would expect normally in one to two days can take sometimes up to a week. Uh, and that's, that's hard. So how the carriers continue to adapt to this, especially on a local level, I think is going to be really interesting. I think, you mm. know, the, they're geared very much for, you know, large international shipments. And now I think they're building more network capacity at, at a local level. Uh, and I think you're going to see, you know, additional services like Uber, see how they can jump in and be three piece to satisfy even the three piece. So it's called like the last mile. So like what Uber and these guys can do from the last mile perspective for these uh, e-commerce players, I think is really, really interesting. At the end of it, it's just going to continue to benefit the consumer. Like your experience, if you, yeah. It's going to help you get what you want faster, cheaper, and at the best convenience possible. So it's, it's a great time for the consumer. Mm -hmm. It's a hard time for the consumer, granted, but it's, I think it's a great time when it comes to uh, what technology and what things are going to be able to do for them. I think also that we were, well, we were lucky in some respects because we did have enough, like there, you know what I mean? There were enough networks. So like, even though Amazon had to basically shut down and only do essentials for a per period of time, they were still doing it. You know, if this had happened even 10 years ago, would there have been enough, you know what I mean? Like the capabilities that we have now to even support yeah. consumers, you know, when everybody was stuck at home. But the other thing I saw, like when you're talking about carrier networks is like, you know, our grocery deliveries, uh, you know, it's either like the actual grocer doing it or it's like, it's like Uber or Grubhub was an option mm -hmm. to take it the extra mile. So yeah. That, yeah, that makes a ton of sense. We see from a Shopify perspective, e-commerce, I mean, there's different options, but they're the ones that have been by far, you know, outpaced everybody else just in terms of the capabilities and how like robust it is. Like, you know, I've, I don't know that I've seen another platform, um, that has the capabilities it has. It also can be somewhat cost inefficient, mm -hmm. um, but it scales the best out of everything else. So that's it. That's interesting. I don't know that I expected that, like that type of response for the future of e-commerce, but I mean, what would the future be since it's already online? So there'd be other services to kind of support that and expand it. Very interesting. Yeah. I just think it's going to be more touch points at the end of the day. Yeah. I mean, it's just a, it's maximizing or optimizing for the uh, optimal number of touch points for a customer to get what they need quickest and cheapest. Uh, and that's gonna be, again, it's gonna benefit consumers, which I think is pretty exciting. Mm -hmm. um, 
That's, it's actually really interesting. I think the last thing that I want to touch on with you is just because this is somewhat of a marketing podcast and um, Schaefer Digital that we're calling ourselves now, by the time <laughs> this comes out, um, is, is so digitally focused. I just kind of want to touch on advertising in e-commerce. I know you are obviously a finance person, but from my perspective, you know, the limitations that are starting to happen and, you know, Facebook isn't great for e-commerce for a number of reasons, but Google ads, you're starting to see the same thing just in terms of the, from search, they're limiting the type of search terms, which you've probably seen. Um, and they're changing a lot of the way that they used to do things. So like you're seeing more and more constraints put on advertising, you know, like how, how do you think everybody's going to solve for that as we go along? Like, you're just going to have to adjust, but you know, like, I guess, do you have a perspective on that just because we're seeing so many constraints put on advertising channels that are basically direct, the most direct response? Yeah, I think the, the bottom funnel is going to continue to get uh, get harder. And Google's actually evolved quite a bit during this uh, this window of, uh, of time with uh, doing more around the uh, free product listing ads, mm -hmm. uh, the free ads program, uh, and rolling that out. So I think can, uh, businesses are just starting to start to get like, familiar with what that platform looks like. But I mean, uh, on the paid side, um, yeah, I think it's going to continue to get harder and harder and just and more expensive as more people enter the auction. Um, I think it's actually been a little tougher in the short term, though, as especially when COVID first hit, and uh, I think it depends very much on, on industry, the amount of money that you can spend on bottom funnel, uh, you know, really started to, to go down because the cash flow wasn't necessarily, uh, necessarily there. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I think digital advertising will always have and will probably even have an increased level of importance. And it's really understanding where your demographic uh, is and how you're speaking to them. So, uh, you know, I agree on, on Facebook, although they have some really interesting things you can do with custom audiences. And again, I think it, it benefits certain audience uh, lists and stuff. Yeah. I, which again, I think is really good depending upon what industry that you're in and the number of SKUs that you have available for sale. I think for, you know, uh, retailers that have this, this just broad spectrum of what they're doing, it does make it a lot harder and it is relatively kind of inefficient unless you're very focused on uh, a group and a very specific set of products for, for a group. You know, I, influencers are one thing that I think I could see probably going away. Like, I don't, I don't know if the ROI is there and if yeah. consumers are really biting on it, um, it's just, it, it seems like it's the emperor's new clothes and, you know, and, no offense to any influencers. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm definitely not one of them. I think I've got probably 300 people following me on Instagram. Uh, and, and, you know, of that, probably most are, are family and friends. I don't think I actually influence anybody whatsoever. Um, but I, I just don't think you quite see the, the traction that you, you, you first did. And I think the, the cost of doing some really like big name celebrity influencers, the ROI just isn't there in the same way that it's not necessarily there. <laughs> For, for top funnel advertising traditional media like the TV was back in the day. So I think it's really going to need to be what are what are your mechanisms within your odd like within your DMAs that you really want to, to focus on because you're going to need to have your you know good core bottom funnel but then shifting a little bit further up you know mid funnel like social will still have importance mm -hmm. but how do you just do it in in, in a more effective way? So I, I I don't have the answer there but I kind of see that being uh, 
really the long standing problem is, is how do you rely less on influencers, but still make sure that you're getting eyeballs here, uh, you know, on your brand and highlighting what your brand relevance is. I, I, I tend to think back to, um, you know, it, when it comes to the kind of the three customer sets, right? So your, your website customers, your uh, brand partners, and obviously your employees, the more that you can do to, to maximize the benefit you're, you're giving to each of those different groups, I, the value of uh, word of mouth, like it needs to get, become even that much more important now. And again, as people are even more connected, making sure that customers, brand partners, and employees are having great experiences because they are still marketing mouthpieces that, that are out there, even for mature businesses. Yeah. So I, I see that as another touch point that's kind of just, it's de-emphasized quite a bit, but just making sure that, you know, with whether it's, you know, positive response rates or your NPS scores, that people are, are getting the positive experiences from your brand that you want them to get and allowing them to be your marketers and your word of mouth, I think is, is pretty good. And then track it, see where they're commenting. How can you double down on that? Mm-hmm. I think that's a good point. I, I, a lot of companies are losing that. Obviously, Zappos built the company on customer service. I mean, still a lot of, of what you guys see in the news. And um, it's just, you just don't see it a lot anymore. I think Chewy may be the only other company that I know of that really like, and you guys probably know, um, that really like hones in on that. But they modeled it after Zappos' customer service. So... Um, yeah. there's, there's a lot of brands that I think do do a great job with with customer service. Um, I think it's also important to understand that customer service means different things to different people. Mm-hmm. So I think if you actually, I think a really good example of this is Amazon. Amazon, is, they, they are the world's most customer centric company. And, you know, for me, I, my perfect uh, outcome from customer service is not to have to you know, invest a lot of time to call and, and talk to somebody. So it's really the self-service mechanisms that exist through the app or through, you know, the desktop experiences to, to get to where I need to go quickly and just and be done. Uh, so I think it's, it's a combination of, you know, that type of thing for, you know, for the consumer that really wants that, that is, is very time conscious, but then also having, you know, chances like with Zappos, you call into our customer loyalty team, you know, we pride ourselves on creating personal, emotional and connections with people. We care about you. We care about what you have to say. And, you know, we like the, if you want to call in and, you know, talk about anything, we launched our CS uh, customer service for anything program during COVID because, you know, it's not just about buying, you know, shoes, clothing, handbags, accessories, you know, anything, anything that we sell. It's, about the human aspect of it also this has been a really hard time for for a lot of people and uh you know i thought the way that we could do uh you know best from a brand perspective is to to show people that you know we do care uh and you know if you want to talk about anything you know there's people here that are willing to be on the other side and you know have a conversation so it's been really rough on folks so i'm super proud of uh of zappos and our customer loyalty team for uh you know for that program the cs for anything program uh, and just making sure that that is, uh, you know, highlight of our brand. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, I think that brings us to the end of our time here. Um, thanks for joining us on another episode of Digital Quarantine and Scott's obviously first episode of Digital Quarantine. Mm-hmm. Hopefully you can come back and talk to us again and, you know, maybe have some new insights and maybe we talk about a totally different area. Yeah. That sounds great. You know, I would love to come back on. 
uh, sometime in the future, if you, if you want to have me back on, uh, you know, hopefully get some, some decent feedback and I didn't say anything too nuts, too crazy in this that everyone's <laughs> like, whoa, that guy, forget it. Um, no, it was yeah. super insightful. I think it was great. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. At the end of the day, I think just the most important thing is keeping your eyes on the customer yeah. and knowing who your customer is and what is it that your brand can do better than anybody else for, uh, mm-hmm. for your customers. Yep. Yeah, I agree with that too. It's whether you're selling a product or a service in the end, it's, you know, who's going to be buying that and what's the best way you can satisfy that person. So with that, yep. that'll, that'll be it. Thanks for listening awesome. again and um, tune in for the next episode. Yeah.